0: Let me pray for us, and then we're going to look at Isaiah 41, the first 20 verses today together. Then who shall fall on bended knee every creature of our God and King. we just saying that to you, Lord, uh, not because you didn't know that that was the case or will be the case, but because we need to be reminded of it. And so we pray that you would teach us today And guide us, and Holy Spirit, we pray that as we look at Your Word, that You would teach, enable teaching now in power and in strength and in truth, but also enable a right response to Your Word. Would You reveal to us, Holy Spirit, how we are responding to the claim that You make, Jesus, to be King over all the universe? How are we responding to that? Do our lives show and reflect that we believe that that's true? We pray that you would cause us to pause now in your presence and to just let you teach and instruct us. Convict us where you need to convict us. Comfort us where you need to comfort us. Help us to move forward in the way that you want us to move forward. So give us strength, understanding. And we thank you for your word, that it is true, that it is dependable, that it's right. We can align our lives underneath its authority. And when we do, We thrive, we flourish in the design that you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as I said, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 41, and we're going to look at the first 20 verses there. And as you're turning, let me just kind of give you the big theme for the day, and it's really, it's not complex Uh, It is challenging, but the the theme essentially of this text, these first 20 verses, is that it challenges us to think about how we respond to the claim that God makes to be in control of everything. And really, I think in some sense you could say that all people in the world are really divided into one of two camps. They're they're divided into two positions when it comes to what we believe about or how we respond to, I should say, rather about the fact that God claims to be in control of everything. There are those who respond to that claim when God says, I I am the creator of it all and I control it all. There's a response to that that is, I would say, probably a natural human response, which is to try and run from that, to want to put that away, to seek ways to get out from underneath that claim or to dismiss that claim. And then the other response then would be probably obvious, right? It's to accept that claim. And to say, yes, that is true, and that is true, and therefore I must live my life accordingly because God is in control of all things. Now, essentially what this passage is gonna do in Isaiah 41 is it's gonna give us a juxtaposition or a a putting together of the way people respond to God's claim to be in charge. And they're gonna say, you can respond this way or you can respond that way. And the way you respond matters very, very much. And so that's what Isaiah wants to get at today. Now remember, if you've been with us in our, Study of the book of Isaiah. We've been, you know, first 39 chapters, there was a significant amount of judgment and God's purifying judgment upon his people in particular, but upon the nations as well. And we we heard a lot about that. And then we transitioned into chapter 40 and we found this great surprising message that we perhaps didn't think we were going to hear after the first 39 chapters. And it was, now I turn to comfort my people, God says. And so in chapters 40 through 55, this next section of the book, really it's a section where God is saying, "I, I am going to comfort my people. My purifying judgment, my purifying work has been done. I've laid that down now. And now I'm gonna proclaim what is my, my deepest intention towards my people? To bring comfort to them. And so we're going to find that theme of comfort, again, throughout these chapters. And chapter 41 is no different. We're going to find that God is going to say to his people, I intend my claim to be in control of everything to be a great comfort to you and to put away fear for you if you wrestle with fear. Can I just give you a heads up that if you wrestle with fear and anxiety, today I think God has a word for you. He says a specific word for you that he wants you to hear. You know, and the thing that's so interesting to me is I was looking at about four times in this text, God is going to say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He's just going to keep repeating it, right? And the Bible repeats that theme a lot, a lot. And I think the reason it repeats that theme so much is because it's really hard. Would you agree with that? It can be like, if you wrestle with fear and anxiety, it's not as simple as preacher boy getting up here and saying, don't be afraid. And you go home, you're like, I'm good now. That's awesome. Right? Right? He knows it's hard. He knows it's hard, but he repeats it because he knows it's hard, because he expects us to live in light of the truth that, that he gives us so that we can put fear away, so we can wrestle with it and fight it and not just sort of throw our hands up and say, well, this is, just, this is just who I am and it's what I am and I'll never be anything different. I will always be filled with fear. I will always be filled with anxiety. And there's really nothing to be done about that. I want to see if we can't get rid of that fatalistic way of thinking, can we? Because God's word, look, I mean, either God's word is true when he tells us we don't have to be afraid. And he says, don't fear. And if we integrate the truths of that word, it can eliminate fear in us and put it away and we can wrestle with it really well. Or God's word is not true and we have to live steeped in fear. But if it is true, then we don't have to live this way. Would you agree with that? Okay, so let's start from that premise. God's word is true. I find that often people who are in my office and we're wrestling through issues of fear, right, that they're, they're, and believe me, I sympathize. It's hard, but that wrestling can bring you to a point where of exhaustion over time, I know this, where you start to believe that there's no other way to live. There is no freedom to be found from this fear and from this anxiety. And friends, I just we have to start from the position of saying that is not true. That is not true. And God's word is true. Can we start from there? Okay, all right. So that's essentially where we're diving in today. God, and now let me read the first four verses to you of chapter 41, and uh, they kind of set the scene for us. So they say this, it says, "'Listen to me in silence, Oh, coastlands. Now, coastlands here is a metaphor for basically all the rest of the earth that's not Jerusalem, that's not Judah. Uh, He's essentially saying, as far out as you can go, the coastlands is as far out as we know. So he's saying, listen to me, all the earth. Let the peoples renew their strength. So he's saying, summon up your strength, nations. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Then he says, who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first. And with the last, I am he. Because you need a little bit of historical context to understand what Isaiah is talking about there. You know, you remember, as we've been working through the book, that Assyria was this world power at the beginning of the book, and now we've been transported prophetically 150 years in the future from the time in which Isaiah lived. And he's speaking to a people who are living in exile in Babylon and saying to them, I want to comfort you. Even though you're living in exile, you've been conquered by a foreign people, I want to give you comfort. And now he's going to begin to talk about the next world power that will come on the scene. And that world power is the nation of Persia, who will eventually conquer Babylon. That's, that's going to come. and the king. Of Persia is a king named Cyrus. And in a couple chapters, you're going to see God is just going to name him by name. But that's who he's talking about in these first four verses. He's saying, I am raising up Cyrus, this one from the east, and he is going to begin to conquer all the nations, all the coastlands. And the reason he's going to be able to do that, did you catch what God said in verse four? Is because I determined that he shall do so. I have raised him up. I have called him to do what he's done. He's going to go and conquer in places, it says, where his feet have not trod. In other words, he's gonna continue to conquer new lands that he doesn't know anything about. He doesn't have an expertise about those places that should enable him to conquer them. But because God has dictated that it will be so, it will be so. And it comes to pass. Cyrus comes to conquer Babylon and he conquers all the coastlands and he conquers the greater part of the world. Persia becomes the greatest empire that's ever existed on the world stage at one point in history. And so God is declaring that this will come to pass. So the important thing for us to understand now is that Isaiah's starting this chapter and he's again speaking prophetically about events in the future essentially to say to us, God claims to be in control of all world events in history. God is saying, who, who does this? Who raises up generation after generation? And what's his response to that? Is it Cyrus that has conquered because Cyrus is so wonderful? No, it's because God has de- declared and determined that it will be so. And he says, I, the Lord, am the first. I am with the last. I am the one. So here's, here's where what I talked about now becomes plain, right? What is happening in this chapter is that God is saying, you need to respond to the fact that I claim to be in control. And let me show you what possible responses there are. Now, follow me, because what we're gonna see is that in verses five through eight, we're gonna see the response of people who want to dismiss that claim, who want to get out from underneath it. And then in verses, sorry, five through seven, and then in verse eight through verse 20, what we're gonna see is the, the response God expects from his people about that claim that he's in control. The response he expects his people to have. So let me just kind of then say that if, you're, if you are not a follower of Jesus, um, my encouragement to you is just, just examine and see uh, if the responses that, that the Bible paints as the response of people who, who say, I'm, I'm going to dismiss the idea that God's in control of everything. I, I don't, either don't want that to be true or I don't find it to be true as I think about what I look at in the world. Uh, see if this response is fitting, if it describes you. And let me say also to those of you who are followers of Jesus, who, who claim, uh, becoming a follower of Jesus, would you agree that means you believe God's in control? Man, that just kind of comes together, right? So if you, if you believe that, the question is, are you living like you believe that? Or do verses five through seven more aptly describe you? Will you be described by verses eight through 20 or will you be described by verses five through seven? So this is the question we're meant to ask ourselves now. So look with me at verses five through seven. They say this, and we're gonna look first at the natural human response to God's sovereignty, God's control. It says, the coastlands, again, all the people, all the nations, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Okay, so a couple things we see here. That's, that's poetic language, so it can be a little hard to follow, I know. But let me just see if I can't unpack for us what is really going on here with the response of the coastlands that they give. The first thing we see is that it says they are afraid. Did you catch that? They are afraid. Now, perhaps if you're in that place of saying, I don't don't identify that God actually is in control of things and I reject that idea, uh, perhaps you'd say, I'm not not dismissing that out of fear. So I recognize this is a challenge. But What the Bible is saying is that it's very possible that you reject that notion out of a motivation of fear, even though you might not recognize it that there's something about saying God is in control of all things. And what then is required is that I submit to that and, and respond to it that causes me to, to not like that and to want to get out from underneath it, that I actually might even be described as fearing that thing. Let me just say that that makes sense, I think, to some degree. That, that can make sense if you don't have a perspective uh, or if you have a perspective about God that he is harsh that he is um, not loving, that he's not a good father, right? It would make sense perhaps to be fearful of that. We were uh, talking on Thursday night with this leadership development track cohort that we have here at the church. And we were talking about this idea uh, that just the the culture or the, the thinking of the world, the philosophy of the world around freedom is this idea that freedom is really freedom from any constraints, freedom to dictate our own future and to declare that no one can tell me what to do or who to be, that that's essentially how we define freedom. And the idea that religion brings into play that there is a supernatural being who is in charge of everything uh, is completely distasteful. It's the, uh, it's, it completely goes against and, uh, and brings so much oppression into the world because we have defined freedom according to this idea of just being completely free. Now, One of the things we talked about, and uh, Tim Keller brings it forward in his book, Making Sense of God, which I think is a really great read, uh, brings forward this idea that freedom is more complex than you think it is. Freedom is more complex than you think it is. Freedom is not just freedom from constraints to to be told you must do this or you must do that, but, but freedom is something more than that. Freedom is actually freedom to flourish in the design that you've been given. And he uses a great illustration, the idea that, you know, there's a, he says there's a young man who is 5'3 and about 115 pounds, and his dream is to be an NFL linebacker. And because he's been raised in American schools all his life and been told you can be anything you want to be, like an idiot, he's believed it. Right? But there's, there's no freedom in just believing there are no constraints on your life when your design, your very makeup, just doesn't allow certain things to be your, your destiny, you know. Uh, he's going to find the opposite of freedom if he steps on an NFL football field at 5'3 and 115 pounds. He's going to find the constraints of a hospital real fast. Right. But of course, the idea that Keller is, is purporting, the thing he's bringing forward is the idea that freedom is not just freedom from constraints to be anything or do anything we want. Freedom is freedom to thrive and flourish in the way we've been designed, in the way we've been made. That's what real freedom is. He goes further to say, and I really like this idea. We all understand the concept of giving up lesser freedoms to get a greater freedom, right? Because the older you get, the more you recognize you can't just eat what you want anymore, right? You you want to be around for your grandkids. You want to have good physical health. You don't want to spend your days in a hospital or a doctor's office. You want those things. And if you want that kind of freedom, the freedom that comes with good health, what must you sacrifice? The freedom to eat anything you want to drink anything you want, to live any way you want. You have to sacrifice lesser freedoms, certain things to get greater freedoms. That's the point Keller's making and I find it to be really helpful. So my encouragement to you is this, when we think about this idea of God's control of things rather than responding to it, perhaps from this idea of, well, I have this definition of freedom that precludes the idea that I would ever be told by anyone, God or anyone else, what I must do or what I must be or how I must be perhaps, friends, you have a misguided notion of what it really means to be free. Perhaps. Perhaps there's a better understanding of freedom that has to do with your design, your purpose, and one who designed you and has a purpose for you, that when you live in it, you experience freedom. My hope would be that if if you're not a believer, that you could talk to anybody in here who is a believer and that what you would hear them say to you is, when I'm operating in what God made me to be, I feel the absolute freest. There's nothing more freeing than being a slave to the purposes of God for which he has designed me. I just experience the exhilaration of it, the flourishing of it, the hope of it, the joy of it. It is life-giving to me. And that would be a truer freedom than being enslaved to my own ideas about what I want to accomplish and what I want to be. I'd offer that to you as something to think on. So let's look then at the two things in verses six and seven that he says kind of come out of this fear. If there's a fear, whether it's born out of our definitions of freedom or not, wherever it may come from, this sense of like, I don't like that God is in control, the coastlands are saying. And then in verse six, he says, everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. Okay, so what's happening there is the people are essentially looking at this claim that God is making, saying, look, I'm bringing... Cyrus down and I'm in charge of that happening and rather than respond to that by saying okay God then we want to be on your team like we want to get ourselves right with you the response is to gather around all the people who agree with them that God is not in control of things and saying let's be strong together. Let's create, a, let's create a collective that enables us to stand up against the purposes of God in the world so that we don't have to be afraid anymore. We'll find strength in one another. And what he's getting at there, I think, is our tendency, our tendency uh, to basically gather around us those who think the way we think, to create echo chambers. You know that term, Right? create echo chambers that just essentially speak back to us the things we want to hear and affirm our own worldview, the things that we think. So perhaps I could ask this question to those of you who would would, um, not presently acknowledge that God is in control of the events of world history. When's the last time you really sat down and gave a good hearing to someone who believes that God is in control? of all things, and had a good, strong conversation about that. We're willing to listen to that. Or do you tend to seek out people who will simply and only affirm what it is you already think about God? Because my friend, I promise you, there are are new places to go in your understanding of God. There are places that you can have great conversation, but you have to get out of those echo chambers. You have to get out of those places where you're just essentially looking for people to affirm you in what you already think. And if I could say, and I'm gonna turn this on us as Christians here in just a second, so be prepared. If I could say, whether Christian or unchristian, it's a bit of a mark of immaturity to only surround yourself with people who think the way you think and who will speak back to you what it is you want to hear. Isn't that what we did when we were real young and we didn't like what our parents said to us? What did we do? We surrounded ourselves with our peers and we got them to to tell us how dumb our parents were, right? And how they they don't get it. They don't get it, you know? They just don't understand. And, and, And it felt good. It felt really good to be affirmed. And then hopefully, quite possibly, some years down the road, we looked back and we realized that we were getting really, we were existing in an echo chamber of teenage angst where we just got affirmed our feelings about the authority of our parents over us. And perhaps years later, I hope what you discovered was, wow, my parents had more wisdom than I really thought. Can anyone say amen to that? Bless your parents right now and say amen to that, right? Where you're like, oh, actually I came to realize that they had more wisdom, more understanding than I thought they had, right? And that's a mark of maturity. You've grown into maturity to see that you needed not just an echo chamber, you needed someone who had a differing viewpoint from you. Now, let me, again, now flip that as I said I would and say, Christian, do you have relationships with people who aren't just an echo chamber of your Christian faith? Now, but look, I I believe that your Christian faith, I'm I'm a Christian pastor up here, okay? I believe that you're right. I believe that you're right. But if you only ever exist in an echo chamber, how will people who need to have philosophies of the world challenged by the philosophies of the scriptures, how will they ever be challenged? And how will you ever actually learn the way people think? This is one of the great mistakes of of Christians, is that we live in these little echo chambers of Christian thought. We only ever talk to one another about what we think about the world and philosophies in the world and what's going on in current events. And we just pat each other on the back as if we, you know, we get it and they don't. But we never actually truly engage with the people who are having those r- real conversation, asking those real questions. And because we don't, we don't really know. We don't really know the kinds of things people think. So echo chambers just in general, I would say not a good idea. Right, now, the second thing, okay, the second thing happens in verse seven. And this is the great ironic thing that happens because look at what he says. It says, the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and then he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it's good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. He's painting the picture of people who make idols for a living. Now in this day and age, there were people who made, that's what they did to make a living. They made idols literally out of wood, out of, and, they, and they overlaid gold or some kind of silver on it. And so there's someone with an anvil hammering out that, and then someone who's laying it over, and someone, with a, who, someone who's, who's putting up nails upon which the idol's going to sit. And the idea essentially is that he's saying is fear... Produces echo chambers. It also produces among those who, who don't want to acknowledge God's control of all things. It also creates uh, the the way in which they go about it is to create small g gods for themselves, to to create their own gods to say I'm I'm going to I'm going to do this. Now, again, if you're in that place where you're thinking no I, that look I don't acknowledge that God is in control, but I am not creating gods for myself. I'm not out here doing what verse 7 talks about, making little idols and hanging them on a the shelf. And I'd, I'd agree with you. You're probably not, very few of you, probably, maybe none of you, are actually in the, in the, in the wood shop, creating little idols, laying, overlaying them with gold and then putting them on somewhere on a mantle in your house and offering sacrifices to them. That, that's probably not happening that much. Happened a lot back then. Not happening probably so much, but... I would offer that you need to think a little differently about what an idol is, right? Because while in the Old Testament, there's this idea of the idol that's the actual statue and it's sitting on the mantle and we're worshiping it, uh, which is, you know, to us in our sort of modern thinking probably seems a little silly. But an idol is just this. An idol is anything that you look to for your sense of value and identity and purpose. And defining idol that way, I would say this. We all worship something. We are, we are made to be worshiping beings and therefore we worship something. We find our value, our identity, our worth, our purpose from something. Whatever that thing is, is what we worship. Whatever that thing is, is what we worship. And look, I mean, at the end of the day, we all do this. We all worship something. We all worship something. Whatever it is that you're not okay without, just pause for a moment and think, what would I not be okay without? My guess is you can think of something. If, if the answer is there's anything other than God himself that I wouldn't be okay without, that thing either is or is in danger of becoming an idol. If there's anything other than God about which I would say I, I, I cannot breathe another breath without that thing. The idea of losing that thing. doesn't. I mean, look, we, we have loved ones. We have things we care about. I'm not saying it wouldn't hurt to lose those things. Of course it would and it should. But there's a difference between hurt and being completely undone if something is taken from us. Now, let me, let me kind of back this idea up of saying we all worship something, therefore we, you know, we all are susceptible to idols. Like If you are someone who's not a Christian and you're saying to yourself, well, that's not me. That, that doesn't describe me, okay? One, I I'd, I'd challenge that notion because my guess is you have a relationship, you have a a job, you have you know, money, you have something, material possessions, there's something that you spend your inordinate amounts of energy and time upon and you find that you care deeply about it. You don't just have to take my words for it. All you have to do is look at contemporary cultural art, right, and you'll see the idea that, that is affirmed by people who are not believers in any way, shape or form who would say, this is absolute, this is true. Like there are things that we need. Uh, One of my favorite musicians, Ray LaMontagne, has a great song called Jolene. It's about addiction and love, and it's a a complex song. But in one of the the lines in the song, he says, man needs something he can hold on to, a nine pound hammer or a woman like you. That's a great line, come on. (laughs) Nine pound hammer or a woman like you. Either one of those things will do. I don't know why that's flattering to Jolene, but you get what he's saying. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little funny, but it's a well-crafted line. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying a man needs something. He has to have it. What? Well, nine-pound hammer is just work. He has to have work. Something that gives him identity. Because what dudes, what do you ask one another? What's the first thing you ask one another when you meet a new guy? The first thing you ask is his name. And the second thing you ask is what? What do you do? What do you do? Right? That's what, that's what we ask each other. What do you do? Why do we do that? Because men place a lot of stock in our work. What do we do? That's the nine-pound hammer. Maybe it's a relationship. It's your Jolene. Right? Don't think Dolly Parton Jolene. That was for folks with more gray hair. All right? <laughs> Some of you know that song, Jolene's not a good girl in that song. I grew up in Texas, so Dolly and I, we're tight, me and Dolly. <laughs> so here's the thing, Friend, friends who are skeptical, okay? Friends who are skeptical. This, this text is an invitation to you. Now the great thing, in chapters one through 39, there's a lot of um, strong statements about what God makes, about saying, look, if you will not come underneath my authority, there will come judgment. We've entered into this section of the text now where God's hand sounds much gentler. Because remember, throughout the entire book, God tells us that his purpose, his overarching purpose, is the triumph of his mercy for people of all nations. In other words, people who are his and people who are not yet his. The ending scene in the whole book is is people from every nation flooding into God's kingdom. Flooding into God's perfect kingdom of righteousness and justice, not just the nation of Israel, but people from everywhere. And God extends that to you today. You know, if you recognize that you perhaps have been rejecting God's statement that says, I'm in control of everything, let me encourage you you are worshiping something. And if you are worshiping something, it's best to, it's best to worship the one who made you, right? I mean, the irony of creating your own gods is that there's this God who claims to create everything and be in charge of everything, and your response to not liking that is to create another God that's really small and tiny and can't actually do anything to protect you from this God. Do you see the irony of that? How much better, how much better, friend, to say, look, this is a God who not only is in charge of everything, but because, with his in-chargedness chose to send his Son into the earth so that he might die to pay for your sins and then rise from the dead. That's a God that can be trusted. That's a God that can be submitted to and surrendered to without fear. He's not fickle. He loves. That's a God worth saying, I'm so glad you're in control of everything. Okay, so so that's the first side now. I know I've been speaking mostly to those of you who are skeptical about Christianity and faith, and I hope some of that is helpful to you. But listen now, Christian, what he says to you as he follows on in the text, verses eight through 20. And he says this. He says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. I love that. My friend. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not. For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, church, what does he say? Fear not, I am the one who helps you. And then in verse 14, fear not, you worm, Jacob. He doesn't mean worm in a derogatory sense there, oddly enough, he just means you're little. You're little and not strong. You men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Okay, so did you see how he bookended with claims of control? Verses one through four, he says, I'm the one raising up Cyprus. And at the very end, he says, I'm doing all that I do so that they may know that I am the one who does it. In other words, God is not in the business of hiding the fact that he's in control. He wants you to know it. Now, here's what I want you to see. Those of you who are followers of Jesus, I want you to see a couple things that, sh- that are meant to eliminate fear. Several times in there, did you catch the fear not? Fear not, so that's what he's saying. If the, the natural response of humanity to God's claim to be in control is to, is to respond to it out of fear, then the, natural, the right response of God's people to his claim of sovereignty should be to what? To rejoice, right, to not fear. To say, oh, yes, I won't fear. And then he gives us this great content of things that are meant to help eliminate fear for us. I'm just going to give you three. Okay. The first one that we see is this. He says, I'm the God of perfect power and I chose you. I chose you. Now he's talking to Israel in this context saying, Israel, you're my chosen ones. But the same idea is present in Ephesians chapter one in the New Testament uh, about believers about those who belong to Jesus listen to what Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 through 6 say it says blessed be the god and father of our lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places so that sounds pretty good so far yes yes, yes. even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Friends, what he's saying is this: you can rest and not have fear because your position before God does not depend upon you in your wisdom choosing him. He chose you. That's the declaration he's making here. And he makes it again and again in Ephesians chapter one and Romans chapter eight. He's gonna say it over and over and over again. He says, you didn't choose me. You didn't seek after me. I came and I, I got you. I chose you. Now I know for some that idea is, is, can be a tough pill to swallow. It maybe even sounds arrogant. Let me just assure you, it's, it's not arrogant to say, I was so foolish and dumb, I never could have chosen God. That's not arrogant. But God in his wisdom, God in his freedom, God in his goodness chose me. The Bible testifies to it again and again and here's what it's meant to be. It's meant to be a great comfort to you. It's meant to be a great comfort to you. To say you're in his hand and you can't get out. He will never drop you. He will never leave you. He doesn't, look, remember what we talked about last week with God's Power, his indescribable majesty, his incomparable majesty. What did we say? We said, everything God decrees is an eternal decree because God does not decree things or say things that are not true. And once he says them, they're true forever. Right? And that applies here. God says, I, I choose you. I choose you, my people. And because I've chosen you, you do not have to be afraid. I don't know of anything more comforting than that honestly. Now here's the second thing he says. After he talks about that then in verses 11 through 13 he says I will fight for you. I am the God of perfect power and I have not only chosen you I will fight for you. He's talking about raising them up and those who oppose them will no longer be around. They'll just they will just have vanished because God will have eliminated all opposition to his people. So here's what I would say to that. When God is claiming that, and it doesn't look like that's the case right now, right? We still see our enemies, we still see people who would oppose our perspective of the world and our love of God and our brothers and sisters in other countries see it much more plainly than we do, quite honestly. And because that still exists in the world, this promise has not come to fruition yet. But friends, don't live as if the fact that it hasn't come to fruition yet means it will not come to fruition. Right, You have to fight against fear. You have to fight against fear. You have to believe that this is a promise that one day all your enemies, all the things that cause you to fear and be afraid and live in that anxiety, all of those things are a breath. They will vanish as a vapor before God. He is eternal and everlasting and all his promises will come to pass, including his promises to put away our great enemy, death. And if he will put death away, is there any other enemy that we have to worry about? He will eliminate death. He will eliminate sin. It will be no more. It will be no longer. And we have to live as if that's true. We have to live as if that's true. We have to to cling to that. So keep fighting. My friends who struggle with fear and anxiety, keep fighting. Don't act as if it's an inevitability that you must be fearful. Please don't. Last thing he says, last thing he says, Verse 17 through 20. I'm the God of perfect power and I love to care for the poor and needy. I'm the God of perfect power and I love to care for the poor and needy. Now, the poor and needy in this context is just referring to all his people. He's basically describing all his people as poor and needy. In comparison to him, would you agree that we are poor and needy? He's just saying, you've got nothing. I have everything. And I love to provide for you. And so he goes on this great, this great illustration, right? This great illustration where he's saying, I'm gonna turn barren wastelands into these places where these beautiful streams start running. And then when those streams start running, I'm gonna plant all these gorgeous trees. And he gives it like five or six different kinds of trees. I looked them up this week just because I thought it was interesting. And so basically he's just saying, I'm gonna make a gorgeous garden out of a desert. I'm just gonna make, it's gonna be astoundingly beautiful. And it's gonna be thriving and flourishing. he's saying, that's essentially the future for you who walk with me. This place of thriving, this place of flourishing, where the acacia tree and the myrtle tree and the plane tree and the pine tree, like they're all there, right? Streams everywhere, pools and springs to drink from. Out of all your barrenness, out of all your barrenness, right? Out of all your devastation, I will bring forth great thriving. Which is really just a good reminder to us. He's trying to give us these things so that we wouldn't be afraid. It's also fitting, by the way, for us to remember, just as a point of application as a church, right? It's fitting for us to remember that we must care for the poor and needy. Right? If God says, I'm a God who loves the poor and needy and he's describing all of us as that, then he's also saying to us, then you must care for the poor and needy. Or do you remember when Paul goes in, in Acts chapter 15, he goes to the council at Jerusalem because there's this question about like how do the Gentiles when they come to faith, how do they need to live? Do they need to follow Mosaic law or do they not? And Paul's saying they don't need to and you know others are saying they should and they, they say Paul's right. Paul is right that they do, they do not need to follow the Mosaic law to, that has nothing to do with salvation. They're free from that. And so Paul is like, yes, all right? Like what I've been preaching is right on and all the apostles affirm it. And the last thing they say to him is this. They say, okay, you're, you're free, Paul. Go keep proclaiming the truth. That the Gentiles do not need to live according to the law to be saved. And the last thing they say to him is, but, but what, what are you not free from? You're free to go proclaim this gospel, but you must also declare that the church must remember the poor and needy. I want you to remember the poor. And Paul says, that's the very thing I wanted to do. Right, so right there at the beginning of this gospel trek that is going through the world, there's this declaration that God's people, because they are poor and needy, and God has raised them up out of their poorness and neediness to give them eternal life and great riches beyond measure in relationship with him, are to be those who proclaim that truth that you can come out of spiritual poverty into spiritual richness through Jesus Christ, but also then who look at their surroundings and say, where are the physically poor and needy and how do we care for them? What do we do about that? We're taking some steps as a church. We're taking some steps as a church to get better and better at this. Uh, you're gonna hear us talk more and more about it there are some things in our city that we're looking uh, through what we call our city team to want to start addressing some of these needs. So looking around looking around, and saying, how do we create flourishing and thriving for the glory of Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel in the city where we are? We're, and you've, you've, if you're a member, you've seen this. Ryan Keith is joining our staff team to give specific oversight to this journey and this venture for us. We're super excited about it. We hope you'll come along with us. We think God is going to continue to give us a voice in this city to care for the poor and needy for the sake of the name of Jesus. And we're excited about those. We reject the notion, this is very important, throughout the history of the church often there's this false dichotomy that gets set up that a church is either going to care about the physical, social needs of its city and its people or it's going to proclaim the gospel. It's got to do one of those two things as if both of those, as if those are somehow contradictory. We reject that notion. We reject that notion that those two things are contradictory. In fact, we believe they must go together because Acts 15 tells us they must go together together. And so we will do both. We will do both. So friends, um, here's what I'd like to do. I saved us 10 whole minutes. It's amazing. You know, um, I want us more and more when we gather here to have a sense of expectation that God meets us in this place. And I'm totally calling audible. I didn't even ask if staff and elders are gonna be here. But do I have staff and elders here? Just raise your hand Do I, if I have some staff, elders, and some prayer folks. Yeah, I'm gonna ask you guys to come forward. If you're wrestling with fear, we don't just wanna give a sermon on fear. Go, all right, go and be warm and well-fed. Go get them. We wanna pray for you. We just wanna pray that God would root fear out of your life. We wanna pray with the expectation that he'll actually do that, that he will actually help fight that battle. So I'm gonna have the worship team come up and they're gonna play. We're gonna to sing together. And if that's you, if you're wrestling with that, um, we just wanna pray for you. We wanna pray that God would release you from that and continue to do that work in your life. So I'll have the elders, some of the elders who are here and, and other people prayer partners just come I just want to pray for you if you'd like we'd welcome that please do take that it's a courageous step we know but come and let us pray with you and for you and let me say too if you're if you're in that camp of where you're like I I, um, have not acknowledged that God is in charge that he's in charge but you're maybe realizing that you you need to and you say I I need to and a God who would send his son to die is a God that I want to learn to surrender to you can come too. We'd love to pray for you and, and just say, yes. Let's talk about how you surrender yourself to the God who has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, so staff, elders, come, let me pray. You come as I do and then stand with me. In fact, go ahead and stand. Let's we'll stand and I'll pray and then we'll sing together. So Lord, we enter into this time now and it's just as a time of prayer. And waiting upon you, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, guide our prayers, guide even our hearts as we're wondering if we should come for prayer. Yeah, come and do your work. Sermons are good, Lord, but you, Holy Spirit, are the one. You're the one. And so you work through the preached word, but you also work in the quiet moments of prayer. And so we ask you to come, root out fear in us, remind us of what's true. Yeah, would you give us that gift today, Lord Jesus. Minister to your people out of your great love for them. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.